0: Hey everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the ID Podcast, where we discuss the stories of medicine and the people behind them. My name is Gurinder. And I'm Naman. Today we have a
1: compelling episode for you all, our guest for this episode is Dr. Eddie Wasser, an experienced emergency and pre-hospital care physician who actually works directly for the Prime Minister of Canada and in his last 20 years has worked for the four Canadian Prime Ministers dating back all the way to Jean Chrétien, as well as working as the National Director for the RCMP's
0: Emergency Medical Response Team. Now, this is a bit of an interesting episode. As I'm sure you could imagine, some of the information discussed has the potential to be a little bit on the side of classified information, potentially revealing details that we would not want and just anyone to be able to listen to. Uh, So we made sure to run all of our questions by the RCMP and all of our questions have been approved by them. You'll also hear some bleeps throughout the episode, but don't worry, it doesn't mean that you're missing any important information. It just means that we had to cut and start the conversation again to avoid talking about any information, once again, that we should not be sharing. Yeah, and this truly
1: is one of our more unique guests, like discussing this kind of special niche in medicine that may not get too much attention, but when called upon, Dr. Wasser and his team need to be ready and able to respond to the medical crisis at hand.
0: All right, all right. I think we've kept the listeners waiting long enough. Time to get to the show. Please join our hosts, Daniel and Jessica, as they interview Dr. Wasser in studio. Enjoy.
2: So, hello everyone. Thank you for listening to another episode of uh, the ID podcast. My name is Daniel Borens, and with me today, I'm joined by my co host, uh, Jessica Jung. Jessica, how are you doing today?
3: I'm well, Daniel. Thank you.
2: Fantastic. All right. So, this is a very exciting episode um, because we're joined today by Dr. Eddie Wasser, who is trained in emergency medicine with a very and unique specialization in disaster medicine, as well as executive healthcare and dignitary protective medicine. So Dr. Walser, welcome, and thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you, Daniel,
4: and uh, for inviting me to participate in this uh, podcast. Uh, I'm certainly honored uh, to have been requested, and uh, as a McMaster alumnus, I'm proud to be uh,
2: participating in this, uh, this interesting and creative initiative. Good for you. Thank you so much. It's always great to have a a proud McMaster alumnus uh, on the show. So I think before we get started, uh, you are, uh, not only do you work in emergency medicine and family medicine, but you uh, occupy a number of very interesting and exciting roles. So I was wondering if you could tell us a bit more about your background and some of the different uh, hats you wear.
4: Yeah, uh, happy to do so. Uh, So as you said, my background is emergency medicine. Uh, predating emergency medicine. I actually worked in EMS uh, for years, and that's how I kind of funded my way through medical school and university, um, and obviously have an affinity for pre-hospital care um, and emergency medicine my uh, entire career, uh, which has been dedicated to that. Um, And uh, I hold staff privileges at uh, two teaching hospitals in Toronto.
2: We apologize. There was a dropout during the recording, and we lost some of the audio of Dr. Wasser, explaining some of his background. And he was just about to say how, before we proceed, he has a disclaimer he would like to make. So here is continuing uh, with him talking about the disclaimer.
4: Uh, I'd like to share that. Any of the things we're talking about today will not be able to address anything of security uh, nature, of course, or privacy. And um, I'm certainly not speaking on behalf of the RCMP, the Government of Canada, or the prime minister of Canada's office, whom I, uh, uh, I'm responsible to and, and manage. So I wear two hats with the RCMP uh, for the last 20 years. I'm the medical director for the prime minister's uh, protective uh, detail, that are known as the PMPD. That's Canada's equivalent of the US Secret Service or people thinking about uh, kind of analogies. And I'm the national uh, medical director for uh, EMERT. EMERT is our emergency medical response team. And, uh, basically all our tactical units. So people typically know the word SWAT in Canada. We don't call it SWAT. We call it ERT emergency response teams. So these are the snipers and people who do assaults on, uh, the people who are uh, uh, you know, active shooters or uh, potential terrorist incidents or people barricade themselves and take hostages. That's what ERT does. And embedded in our ERT teams are our EMERTS and our EMERTS, our Medic- Emergency Medical Response Team, members are career uh, full-time RCMP police officers who have, for multiplicity of reasons, Have decided that they would like to have a medical bent to what they do so they are tasked uh, on these uh, incidents for medical uh, care under fire so in a active shooter in a hostage situation in a volatile situation where civilian assets such as paramedics or fire cannot go into a a situation because it's too dangerous these are police officers who are also medically trained at a very high level so those are my two hats uh, I divide my t- time between the prime minister's security detail and uh, and the EMERT uh, in the EMERT
3: program. Thank you, Dr. Wasser. So, um, of the many roles um, you've occupied, one thing we're really curious about is the prime minister's protection detail. Um, so, could you tell us a bit more about your role as medical director in this capacity?
4: Right. So, um, the uh, prime minister, as you can imagine, um, travels not only throughout Canada but travels globally, and. Uh, we're not his personal physician, unlike in the United States where the president of the United States has his personal physician, whoever he or she may be. been, Uh, prior to them holding the post of president, they get a physician assigned to them as their personal doctor. That's not true in Canada. That's not true pretty much in any other country uh, in the world. We are tasked um, from from an emergency medicine standpoint to provide medical protection to the prime minister and his or her family, uh, as well as the RCMP security detail that travel with them. Whether it be locally or internationally, so um, you know we do all our preparedness, emergency preparedness wherever he may go. So identifying what we call medical threats. So in Canada, not a big issue, obviously. Pretty much anywhere in Canada, you're going to get you know, you get an excellent care. Maybe the resources are not the same in all parts of Canada, but in all other parts of the world, we don't know. Uh, we can't guarantee, we do know because we do the research, we cannot guarantee that EMS is the same level of training of EMS providers in Canada, which Canada is a very high level of EMS uh, providers. Uh, we don't know, we, we, we need to know what their capabilities are in other countries regarding regard to trauma medicine, if there was a, you know, if there was a gunshot or a blast or a car accident for that matter. Uh, burns, not all countries uh, that we go to and we visit provide that level of care. And even countries that do, first world countries, when we go to G7s and G20s around the world, which are first world countries, um, sometimes you're in remote areas of those countries. You don't always hold these summits in you know downtown London or downtown Berlin. They may be in remote parts of Italy, in remote parts of anywhere, where you may not have you know trauma centers, burn centers, cardiac centers, those type of things. Even in Canada, if we hold a summit in a remote area, we don't necessarily have a trauma center in that remote area. We have to build all the contingencies for how we would provide medical care on the scene at the time at the highest level possible. And then how do we medically evacuate to the best resources? Uh, So our role is to identify all those resources in all the countries we go to. So we have what's called an advanced team and we have advanced security and part of that security Assessment it includes medicine. So, what is the EMS capabilities? Do they have basic para- responders? Do they have uh, advanced care paramedics? Do they have a trauma center? Where is the trauma center? Do they have a burn unit? Where is the burn unit? Um, if you're dealing with people in the entourage, it's not just the Prime Minister and his family and our security. We have a large entourage the Prime Minister's office, the PMO, uh, other advisors and experts that travel with us of varying ages medical. Uh, conditions that they bring with them you know not everybody is you know 20 years old and fit Um, so we need to know where all the cardiac centers are and other types of centers so we assess those in advance and we engage those facilities we introduce ourselves to them We advise them that we're going to be coming to their country for a period of time and would like to know who the best contact people are. You know, if there is an emergency, what the best phone numbers are. Do they always have physicians on staff in the hospital or do they typically go home at night and we have to bring them in? You know, if we call ahead, how much notice do they need? Is it 10 minutes? Is it an hour? You know, those type of things. So we do all the emergency planning. Obviously, we do planning for countries that do not have. A good or safe blood supply. There are countries where we know we trust their blood supply. Other countries where we don't trust their blood supply. In which case, you know, we bring our own. So we need to know all that information in advance. And then there are some countries that we cannot trust their medical care. If God forbid something happened to the prime minister or his family or anybody in our entourage, where would we take them to another country, a neighboring country? And how would we get them there? Would We bring, we, we, we travel on our own plane. We don't travel commercially. Would we travel in our own plane? Would we uh, get to have a secondary plane? Would we use an air ambulance? Would we use a helicopter? So that's all part of the planning. When you, uh, when you travel with a large uh, international contingency and obviously heads of state, et cetera.
2: Amazing. Well, that's really interesting, especially hearing about how you work with the various different countries when you're traveling uh, with the prime minister to make sure that um, you know the different resources uh, that you need are available. I was wondering if you can maybe talk a bit more about what that looks like when you're um, coordinating with the different countries and, and some of the other challenges are with that role. I know that you spoke about some of them already, though.
4: Yeah, so basically, you know, many of the countries... That we go to, we've been to uh, over, over and over again. Um, you know, there are exceptions—the rural countries that uh, we haven't been to in many years, and in rare occasions that we've never been to, due to whatever reasons. Um, so if we, if it's a country we go to regularly, such as we go to the UK, uh, any of the EU countries we go to, um, you know, uh, we've been to different Middle Eastern countries, you know, Israel, Kuwait, uh, you know, uh, uh, countries that we have long-standing relationships with. We know who the contact people are um, and we reach out to them well in advance. Um, and uh, usually there's a professional friendship that develops over the years because you work so closely. And when we're in their countries, we're their guests. We're, they host us and we're their guests. We wanna be most respectful of, of their uh, various practices and policies uh, and obviously cultural nuances. So you develop a really nice relationship with a uh, professional relationship with these security and medical professionals. And what we'll do is we'll reach out to them Well, in advance, as soon as the prime minister's office notifies us that we have a trip planned for whatever purpose a trade mission, a summit we then uh, obviously start initiating our contacts. Um, And certainly, if those contacts change over the years as people move on, try different jobs, retire, move, etc., we have enough resources they'll say, Oh, here's the new guy to contact. And uh, you know, the local. You know the local prime minister's office. Our embassies in foreign countries are incredibly helpful. Uh, They they live there while they're ambassadors and other uh, roles, so they know about local resources and they help us. Uh, Where Canada has military, you know, and peacekeeping operations, our Department of National Defence, Canadian Forces are very helpful in giving us information uh, as to what's. You know really, what we call boots on the ground uh, from from a bird's eye view what's really going on in that country, what we can rely on, what we can 't rely on, and so on and they 're incredibly helpful and they really you know it, it really is a very respectful relationship because most of these world leaders come to Canada as well at some point, so it 's a lot of reciprocity and working back and forth and collaboratively um, and they get it you know if they were going to a country that does not have a trauma center. There are many countries in the world that do not have a trauma center. Um, You know, we are in the Western world, we're very lucky. Some of them may have cardiac capability, but not the level of cardiac capability that you would get at a McMaster or an Ottawa Heart Institute, or in any American city or any EU city. And they know that, you know, if something bad were to happen from a trauma standpoint or from a cardiac standpoint, that we're going to, uh, we're going to leave, you know, and we're going to plan that out, what our contingencies are, where we're going to go. We call that getting out of Dodge. Uh, that's a metaphor from an old, uh, old Western uh, from many years ago, that we're going to get out of Dodge and have to move on somewhere else. That's, that's rare, but we, we have to plan for that.
3: And that surprisingly leads very well to one of the questions we had. So speaking of um, getting out of dodge and medical contingencies, it seems that every situation you're in um, brings about a new set of expectations and resources to work with. And we were hoping you could walk us through some of the medical backups or contingencies in place should an emergency occur.
4: Yeah, so um, we're part of a group um, called the and we uh, we're, uh it's Canada, US, others. Um, that we meet regularly in the U.S. Um, Unfortunately COVID uh, got in the way of our spring meeting and the uh, medical experts both working for heads of state or other levels of government participate in a series of academic lectures. These are actually accredited courses uh, that we do and deliver to each other Um, and uh, we have a chance to talk about what's going on in different countries that we know we may be going to. Um, So we rely on our like country friends, the US, the EU, um, you know, uh, even uh, some other, some of the third world countries are very advanced in their medical capabilities and uh, participate in the And um, basically, Say, you know, if you're going to go to this country, we hear you're going to this country, or we're all going to this country in six months for a for a summit of some type, um, we know that they do not have capabilities uh, regarding, let's call it burns cardiac so uh we're going to this country and the reason we're going to this country neighboring country is because we have a relationship we have a trade agreement they're one of our colonies and then what we will do we'll piggyback on with them we'll say hey that's great they've already done all the hard work what we call the heavy lifting um can we um leverage off that and can you introduce us to the people in that neighboring country um so we will do that but typically what we'll do is when we arrive to a country doing in advance um we will uh, have the we already are predetermined where we're going to go because we've done all our research we share a huge database with other countries on uh the top medical facilities the contact people those facilities, the contact numbers um and we share that information amongst the mnc group um and uh and uh, like countries and we'll reach out ahead say we're coming on these dates does that work for you, for us to meet with you, get a tour of your facility so we know where the facility is? Uh, is the emergency room right off of Main Street? Because you don't want to start searching for an emergency room you know, in the middle of the night uh, in a country you don't know, and you don't know necessarily the language and so on. Um, so uh, we'd like to come see the facility. We want to know. Are we going right into the emergency room? Is there, uh, is there another part you go to for x rays? Is surgery done here? Do you have a blood bank here if we needed blood? Is it elsewhere? You know, we'd like to meet the doctors who would be the designated physicians who will be uh, on call for us. Uh, do you normally stay in the hospital when you're on call? Do you go home, which I talked about? earlier, um, how far is it reasonable uh, for us to expect you to be there by the time we get there? Or do you need more advance notice? Uh, in some countries, uh, you know, just traffic is so bad um, that it could take the surgeon an hour to get in from his home and he doesn't live that far away. So in those conditions, we would usually ask, would they provide special conditions for the four, 24, 48 hours that were on the ground? Would the uh, physicians that were assigned to us, would they be willing to stay in the hospital the whole time or them and one other person alternate? Usually that's their, they're willing to do that. If we know that uh, EMS is a challenge in getting an ambulance, we may have an ambulance following us around. Some countries automatically offer that. They say, we'd like to give you an ambulance, follow way behind we don't want ambulances following us around everywhere um, so they'll be far behind but close enough if we need them um, and then how do we get out of Dodge as we said uh, to a neighboring country you know you just can't take off a plane you need to have permission to take off and land a plane in, from a country and landing another country so we need to plan for all that And if we're gonna need another plane or a helicopter how do we plan for that you know so those are all the logistics the, the bits and pieces of of a country and as I said earlier some countries we don't trust the blood supply because they can't guarantee that they test it properly or uh, their their systems of controlling temperature are are efficient or reliable and we'll bring our own.
3: That sounds like a lot of details to navigate, Um, lots of extensive planning for sure and forethought and it just seems like in general there are so many different moving pieces to navigate when talking about arranging for emergency medical care in an unfamiliar setting. And for our audience in general, we were just wondering about some of the challenges Canadians might face when trying to access healthcare abroad. Or in other words, what are some things that Canadians might be surprised by or overlook when traveling?
4: Yeah, so that's a great question. I, I get that a lot, just by people reaching out um, in light of the work that, that I do. Um, and, and if you remember, my background was repatriating Canadians. And I used to jump on a plane and fly Canadians back. and that type of stuff. Um, And I still uh, help in navigating Canadians who get into trouble medically or have injuries when they travel all over the world. I think the most important thing uh, for your audience to know and to share with patients as you go into practice is that many Canadians um, are of the belief that their OHIP or Quebec Medicare, whatever healthcare, provincial healthcare coverage you have from where you come from, Uh, will cover you in a foreign country, and that's not true. It won't cover you in the United States or anywhere else. Uh, OHIP in Ontario uh, has uh, the right to pay uh, some, all, or none. I've never ever once heard of OHIP paying 100% of a medical bill where somebody got sick or injured. There are conditions where Canadians are sent to another country, pre approved by OHIP for specialty care, very unique, very unusual circumstances, you know, a a last minute uh, or life saving uh, form of treatment that's not yet available in Canada. But that's all pre approved. We're not talking when people travel on vacations or for work. But so the number one thing that I think people get themselves into the trouble with is they think that OHIP oh, is going to pay the bill and they won't. And you could have a big surprise when you show up in a hospital for very minor things, depending where you go in the world. Um, or it could be inc- incredibly cheap. And then you say, oh, my God, am I getting really good medical care? It was it cost me a couple bucks. Uh, the, the price doesn't reflect the level of care. Sometimes you're getting exceptional care for exceptionally low money in private facilities in uh, the third world countries, Africa, other parts of the world. Um, And sometimes you pay a fortune and you don't necessarily get very good care at all. Um, So I think it's important for people to have good travel insurance. And, uh, you know, uh, travel insurance, not expensive. Um, Travel insurance companies in Canada, there's many of them. I don't recommend one over another. I don't think that would be uh, appropriate and um, certainly not accurate, uh, but there's a lot of medical insurance coverage. I think one of the biggest errors that people make uh, is they don't read their travel insurance policies. so They don't really appreciate um, the, uh, the rules and, and the rules can be really strict um, in, in some regards. So if you're dealing, you know, yourselves as a medical student, you're young, you're probably mostly healthy, but many in travel insurance policies will have um, disclaimers uh, they'll have pre-existing condition limitations. So, for example, you can have a chronic illness, such as diabetes or heart disease or HIV or whatever, uh, cancer. That doesn't stop you from traveling, but they may have rules if there's been, if there's been any change in your medical status or change in your medications, 30 days, 60 days, or 90 days, 120 days, whatever, prior to travel, then those conditions would not be covered uh, or only partially covered. And I think it's important for people to read that uh, before they go, because particularly if you have a a serious medical condition or a chronic medical condition, um, you know, if you're a diabetic and you get into trouble or you're on your March break in Mexico, and the insurance company says, yeah, well, we don't take care of your diabetes because you keep adjusting your insulin dose or other medication dose. Well, and now you end up with diabetes. No one's going to pay the bill. It's going to come out of your pocket, which you may or may not be able to afford. So I think it's really important for people to read the policy and know what's covered and what the rules are if there's any change in your medical status prior to traveling, that's number one. Number two, the other one, which I think is critically important, is there's always a section in the insurance policies called repatriation. How are you going to get back to Canada if you want to get back? And uh, you, you absolutely want to make sure that your travel insurance policy says repatriation by air ambulance, because otherwise they have no obligation to, uh, to repatriate you on an air ambulance. They can put you on a regular commercial flight, a couple seats for you and maybe a nurse, maybe a doctor will escort you, or maybe nobody, um, and uh, and you get home. But the commercial airlines can refuse to let you on the plane if they think you're too sick or too injured, or it's gonna put other passengers at risk because they may have to make an emergency landing because you're not well. So if your policy doesn't say repatriation by air ambulance, uh, go find another policy because that's really the best way to get home. Having said that, even repatriation by air ambulance doesn't guarantee the, the insurance gonna pay for an air ambulance because they don't have to in all circumstances. So if you're, they may say, if you're getting adequate care um, at the hospital in Cancun for your diabetes, we're gonna pay for the care. It's covered in your insurance, no problem. And we know you'd like to be home, but we have no obligation because the policy says, so long as you're getting appropriate care, we have no obligation to fly you back home. So I think people need to know that. I think the last thing that people need to know is where they're going is where is medical care. Um, You know, you go off to resorts uh, in the Caribbean, uh, you go off on safari, you go off on a trek somewhere um, in the third world, you're not necessarily going to get first world Canadian level care um, and there's private and there's public and um, the private facilities may be only in a big center, may not be where you're going to be. So I think it's important for people to know what is the level of medical care they can get, where they can get it, and how they access it. The other thing I always tell people to do is if you're traveling uh, to third world countries uh, where you're going to be off the beaten track away from the big city centers. Uh, is you should probably bring your own syringes and your own needles. And believe it or not, some of these private facilities or even public facilities will charge you a fee to use your own needles. Um, If you can't guarantee that their needles are sterilized or they reuse them because they just don't have the financial means to buy disposable needles and syringes, they reuse needles, they sterilize them. We hope they sterilize them good enough, but I can't guarantee that. Uh, So some of these facilities will charge you a nominal fee to use your own needles. So, I will tell people if they're going backpacking out in the backwaters of some part of the world in a third world country to bring your own needles and bring a good first aid kit and bring enough medication to cover you for if you get a really bad gastro, diarrhea, uh, those type of things. What I call a snivel kit. You know, I got a cold, I got a headache, I got menstrual cramps, I got diarrhea and vomiting to cover those type of th- things that are very common and you don't necessarily want to go seek out. Medical care in a third world country for that stuff.
2: That was uh, that was really interesting to hear, Dr. Wasser, and I think those are some really good tips uh, for people. You know, unfortunately, they can't really travel as much right now, but maybe now they can sit down and look at their travel insurance policy uh, just to make sure it's it's uh, exactly what they want before they are able to travel.
4: Yeah, and, and you know, uh, I, I said earlier, travel insurance is really inexpensive, like only a few dollars a day. It really is a Pennywise, pound foolish when people don't buy it because <laughs> they think oh, number one, oh, it was going to cover which it won't number two uh you're saving money on that end that's really not the place to save money
2: i absolutely agree all right so let's take a short break um and then when we return we'll talk to dr wasser about another one of his hats that he wears <music>
0: Hey everyone, if you enjoy listening to The ID Podcast and want to hear more from us, follow us on social media. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, at The ID Podcast. If there's a topic you'd like for us to cover in a future episode, please feel free to message us or send us a tweet. Thank you, and enjoy the rest of the episode.
2: Alright, and we're back. Okay, so... Uh, thank you again, Dr. Walster, for talking about your role as with the Prime Minister's protection detail. Now we want to talk to you a bit more about your work with the RCMP um, as National Director for the Emergency Medical Response Team, which is EMRT, um, which is a program for counter assault and counterterrorism tactical operations. So we were wondering if you could please tell us a bit more about your role um, in, this, uh, in this field.
4: Right. So, um, as stated earlier, our uh, our SWAT teams in Canada we call ERT emergency response teams, and embedded in those ERT teams for whatever they're called out to do, uh, you know, whether it be an active shooter or a uh, the uh, terrorist incident on Parliament Hill a few years ago, or a hostage taking, or anything that you would typically see a SWAT team going on TV. Or in movies, uh, in those teams, we have our tactical medics, called the Emerge Emergency Medical Response Team. And these are, as stated earlier, these are full-time uh, RCMP police officers, they're career police officers, who for a multiplicity of reasons have an interest on the medical bent. Some of them were paramedics in a previous life. We have some uh, ex-emerge nurses um, who uh, want to reactivate their medical skills, don't want to completely abandon that part of their life, and they join uh, EMERT, and uh, they still have their regular policing duties, but when they're deployed with uh, ERT uh, for any of the type of incidents that ERT is deployed for, uh, they basically uh, throw on their their, uh, tactical uniforms and bring their medical kits, and they provide what we call care under fire, Or uh, care in the austere environment. So uh, if you have a a dangerous situation, uh, not only is it dangerous for EMS, civilian EMS, to go in, it's actually prohibited by law. It would be completely unreasonable if there is somebody shooting at people or uh, there are potential explosives from a bomb or whatever to take in uh, more people into situation and put their lives at risk. That would be irresponsible. But uh, police are required uh, to go into these situations when people are running the opposite way. These are the people, uh, police, fire, run into these situations. Uh, but we obviously don't allow civilians into these situations we, until everything is all clear and safe. So how do you provide care under fire when there's an active shooter, but the environment is not safe? So that's where the EMERT tactical medics come in.
3: So it seems like this is an it, it, extraordinarily high stress situation, and we were just very um, curious as to how best to train individuals to function under the intense stress and pressure and unpredictability of right. these actions. So, yeah.
4: yeah. So there's two components to it. Think, I think it's important to know that you have to remember these are all career police officers. Um, highly trained uh, Canadian law enforcement are highly trained Uh, individuals um, trained to work under extreme stress under extreme pressure Um, you know they're uh, very qualified very trained and they have years of experience um, working in you know very adverse conditions they walk into situations that are often not clear you know that are potentially life-threatening for others and for themselves and uh You know, we see all this stuff on TV, but uh, the reality is no one really knows what it's like to be a police officer, and uh, they're there to protect us. And I've worked in law enforcement for 20 years, not as a police officer, but certainly have had a bird's eye view um, of what they do and how they do it. And I can't even come close to describe the extreme level of stress and the ability and the need for them to keep a level head and so on. So they're, number one, they're highly trained before they're given their badge on their gun. Uh, Once they're on the road, they have years of training. And to be an ERC member or an EMERT member, these are not police officers that are fresh out of the police academy, or in the RCMP, it's called Depot, is our training facility uh, out west. Um, These are police officers with years of experience in a multiplicity of other forms of policing. And uh they apply for these jobs. Um, they want to do this. So uh, they they're then trained uh at a very high level, uh you know, training in every possible combination of permutation of scenarios that you can imagine, uh to try and simulate these situations. Um our tactical medics, I'm responsible for their protocols and all their training, and we uh we use all types of resources to uh Put them in extreme situations. And, uh, there's what's called T C tactical combat casualty care or tactical casualty care. That's a standard of medical care, um, that, uh, is given a military medics. So they could do, uh, advanced airway. They could do surgical airways. They could do chest needle decompression for somebody who has a collapsed lung from a blast or from a gunshot. They could do intravenous, intraosseous needles. There are certain life-saving medications they can give, tourniquets, um, um, airway management, uh, it, it, and certain you know, uh, procedures that they're allowed to do. Um, so they're all trained in a classroom like you guys are. They're trained in scenarios. Uh, skills training, sorry, and supervised uh, and, supervise and, and evaluated extensively. And then they're put into extreme scenarios. We simulate to the best of our ability, uh, you know, that's uh, um, the scenarios of every possible you can imagine gunshots, blast injuries, burns, uh, mass casualty situations, uh, those type of things. And, uh, you know, they're so that when things really bad happen and sadly things bad, things do happen, such as the tragic uh, active shooter situation uh, a little over a month ago in Nova Scotia where we lost one of our CMP members tragically, but uh, 20 something people were killed. And uh, these are the type of people, the tactical ERT and tactical medics that are the people in addition to regular general duty police officers that you see driving in their cars and uniform, these are the guys who train extensively for exactly those situations. Now, tragically, that was the first time we've ever had that level of, uh, of uh, injury and, and death. Awful. But we've certainly, our guys are deployed regularly uh, throughout the country, um, you know, for all types of incidents.
2: Well, that's uh, really interesting to hear, um, you know, the training and the, the intense amount of hard work that's put into, uh, that these officers put into, to um, be able to act uh, when these unfortunate shootings occur. So I was just wondering, um, can you give some more info about some of the considerations for, let's say, some of the medical equipment? And, and you talked about some of the procedures, so considerations for the medical equipment and procedures that are kind of deployed when there is an active uh, shooting zone? Yeah. So we've, uh, emulated
4: the military model. Um, sadly there are too many wars in the world and we've learned a lot. War is, uh, awful, but it also historically has been an incredible uh, medium for medical education and, uh, lessons learned, uh, for all the wrong reasons, but very good results. Our trauma centers today are a direct result of lessons learned from the various wars of the past. Um, so, um, We've learned from our Canadian forces, who were involved uh, extensively with other coalition forces uh, in Afghanistan um, and in other, you know, awful situations. You know, fighting ISIS um, and involved in peacekeeping missions around the world, where they've had to, uh, you know, deploy and provide medical care we've learned for them and the TCCC I made reference to earlier, the tactical combat casualty care is a military model for providing uh, trauma care in the, uh, under extreme situations, under care, under fire, care of the austere environment it's called. So there's an international standard for TCCC, very different than the ABCs you learn, you know, when you're a lifeguard or ski patroller, or even early in medical school with CPR. Um, In that world, we actually move the ABCs aside. And there's a whole other uh, paradigm that focuses on massive hemorrhage because people who are shot, people who are suffer from blast injuries, don't die from the ABCs that you're taught in CPR and first aid. They die from bleeding out. They hemorrhage to death. And they hemorrhage to death very quickly. And unless you stop the bleeding... You know, uh, they have no chance. Doesn't matter if you know CPR. Doesn't matter if you have an automatic defibrillator. And you know, we've learned those lessons tragically from wars, and we've applied them uh, in law enforcement, and now they're applied in the civilian world. If you look at the uh, the Boston Marathon bombing, lay people knew to take their belts and their ties and their kerchiefs off and uh, create tourniquets because if you don't stop the bleeding they're going to die so you know tourniquets are a critical part uh, once upon a time, tourniquets were uh, a taboo word and all kinds of myths and uh, were, were propagated about how dangerous they were and people lose their limbs uh, you know i don't want to sound cavalier or dismissive but i'd rather lose a limb than lose my life and if putting on a tourniquet is going to save my life and uh, there's a risk of losing my limb That's a risk. That's a personal decision that I would want to make. And I think most people would make. And there's all kinds of other, you know, what do we learn about intravenous uh, solutions that you would do in an emergency room? You would not necessarily do in the field, particularly if you can't get them to an emergency room or a trauma center within a few minutes, as you would in a car accident, you can just drive up the street to the Hamilton general in Hamilton and Toronto. We have several trauma centers that are, you know, you know, firing in all pistons 24-7, 365. That's not the case in uh, in a war zone. That's not the case in rural Canada or rural anywhere. So be, these are life-saving skills. And if you can't get an intravenous in someone and they're bleeding out and they need fluid, how are you going to get them fluid? Well, you may put it intraosseous in a bone. And These are skills that are, you know, they teach in TCCC. And if you can't get an airway you need to get a surgical airway and are these skills that you can train medics to do very efficiently and proficiently without putting patients at risk. And it turns out from our, our war experiences that you can train medics very successfully to do these reliably consistently and, and saving people's lives um, with very little, if any downside, uh, particularly in extreme trauma.
3: Certainly, It certainly seems like members of the um, EMRT are very well-trained. They're equipped to do quite a lot on the ground. And um, as you've mentioned, they are experienced officers who are um, well-equipped to respond to these types of situations. And for those of our listeners who aren't necessarily experienced in emergency medicine or even just trauma medicine in general, what are some of the most important things you have to do when assessing a victim in these situations? So we've established that the ABCs move a bit down the priority list and um, stopping any major bleeds takes precedence. But if you could offer some other insights into the first things that responders do.
4: Yeah, I think, you you know, if somebody has suffered from uh, serious injuries, such as in a car accident uh, or a pedestrian hit by a car, someone falls down the side of a a cliff, um, you know, there's multiplicity of types of severe traumas, um, you know, the first thing that I would recommend, and there's a total paradigm shift. It's a different way of thinking uh, than we've done historically. And uh, it's, again, the military experience that's migrating into e, civilian EMS, migrating into civilian first aid, uh, is the first thing you need to know is someone has a massive bleed anywhere. And we call it raking the body. So you literally, with your you'll look and you with your fingers, you rake the body and look at your hands for any blood massive bleeding from you know a limb that may be partially amputated or, or there's massive bleeding you need to stop the massive bleeding And i think that every person should be equipped equipped with a proper tourniquet there's a lot of tourniquets on the market some are better some are not as good um and uh, a proper tourniquet and apply it and don't worry, you're not going to hurt the person. It's painful, but you're not going to injure the person, I should say. And you're certainly not going to kill them with the tourniquet. And don't worry about the limb. Uh, worry about their life. I think that would be the first thing, um, you know, to plug all the holes where bleeding is coming from. That would be, firstly, uh, one. And uh, there's a protocol called Marsh M-A-R-C-H-E. So M is for massive bleeding. Uh, a is for airway. Uh, and not the ABC's airway, but yes, the ABC's airway. Do they have an airway? And sometimes simple things like just readjusting the airway. Again, you don't want to crank on somebody's neck if they've had a massive fall or been hit by a car and cause a serious spinal injury. But there are minor things that you can do to ensure and protect the airway because uh, you don't want someone to bleed to death and uh, not breathe to death and that type of thing. And uh, you may need to apply some resuscitative measures, um, you know, airway management, you know, breathing assist in some way, and so on. Um, And then you work your way down. You know, where there's a lot of emphasis on spinal injuries, which there should be, you know, we don't want to make people worse. But there's a lot of good studies that were done by our military, that the degree of spinal injuries are not nearly uh, as problematic uh, as people bleeding to death. And while you're not going to drag people and toss them all over the place, you know, so long as they're not moving, you're not going to, create more harm you're not going to hurt them you know you don't want you're not going to drag them away unless there's danger such as a fire risk or in the police world if there's a shooting risk obviously you need to get them out of a out of the target zone um but basically other than not moving them you're best not moving them and let when It's all good for EMS to come and properly do spinal support and put them on a spinal board and get them to a hospital um, as opposed to moving people. And we hear that all the time from EMS that somebody was dragged out of the car because they thought the car was going to explode, but cars rarely ever explode. Um, So, you know, leave people where they are and let EMS come do their, their jobs Um, as a first responder, as a first aider to let them move the patient. Don't move the patient unless they're an immediate uh, imminent risk of having further injury.
2: Well, I think that's all the questions that we had, Dr. Wasser. So thank you again so much for joining us. This was a really interesting um, episode and we definitely learned a lot that we didn't learn. Uh, you know, we learned a lot of medicine in med school, but uh, this is something that we, we haven't really touched on and I'm sure our listeners will really appreciate uh, listening uh, to what you talked about today. So thank you so much for joining us. Thank you guys, I really appreciate it. Good luck in your studies, and uh, you are living
4: through an unprecedented time, and uh, I graduated in 1989, and my medical school class was the first year at McMaster in pretty much every medical school in Canada where HIV was in the curriculum. So I remember that as if it was yesterday, and you too in uh, 25 to 30 years from now as competent, uh, excellent physicians, are going to remember that in your first year medical school, there was this illness called COVID and all the lessons learned from that, um, both good, bad, and ugly. So best of luck, stay healthy and safe. And uh, thank you for uh, thinking of me. Thank you very much. Take care, guys. Bye-bye.
2: Thank you. You too.
1: All right, everyone. Thanks so much for tuning in to our interview with Dr. Eddie Wasser. I I personally thought it was a really fascinating interview and it kind of made me wonder what type of a person Dr. Wasser is. So I was doing a little bit of research and I came across this article uh, actually written by the McMaster Daily News and wanted to kind of share this little excerpt. So, and I quote, this is uh, Dr. Wasser in his first semester at Mac, uh, Wasser came across an article in the silhouette. It had taken 20 minutes for an ambulance to arrive after a student had fainted. This didn't make sense to Wasser as there's a medical center on campus. He discovered that the ambulance stations in Hamilton were located where the action was, downtown, the steel mills and near highways. The article goes on to say how Wasser then met with the president of McMaster Alvin Lee, who kind of gave him a go ahead to kind of start a organization if he had a physician backing him up. So the kind of excerpt concludes with saying, Quote, still only in this first semester, Wasser helped launch the first student-run emergency medical service at a Canadian university, unquote. So I think this goes on to become uh, EFERT, uh, which is the McMaster student-run emergency
0: response team. Grinder, do you want to share a little bit more about that? Absolutely, noman. So as a lot of people listening probably already know, I talk about this all the time, uh, but I did my undergrad at Mac as well. So I've been here for quite a while. And in my first year, uh, I actually got saved by EFERT or the emergency first response team because I had quite a deep cut in my finger and I was bleeding really heavily, did not know what to do. Good thing I, I had EFERT to call and I had no idea that it was Dr. Eddie Wasser behind it at that, at that point. But uh, I guess this is a perfect time to thank Dr. Uh, Wasser for putting together the, this amazing service. I know a lot of friends who are also on EFERT as well and their experience has always been great to be able to help other students.
1: Yeah, and I think that just shows like the type of person he is and how he's been like, ever since his first semester of undergrad, he is like thinking about how to help people and like recognize a problem at hand. And I think that's, it's a real uh, insight into
0: the type of person he is. And on that note, I'm sure you could hear about his passion when he was talking about emergency medicine. And some of it did spill over into a little bit of a technical talk. So we'd love to clarify some of the terms that were discussed in the episode. Uh, so we did mention a lot about the abcs of trauma which is just a simple mnemonic which helps us remember the primary steps when you when responding to a trauma
1: yeah so this is kind of like our little fact check so just a quick lesson. So A stands for airway management or maintenance. B stands for like breathing and ventilation. And C is circulation. So it's kind of a checklist that anytime you respond to a situation, you don't know what's going on. You want to make sure that there's nothing caught in someone's throat. They're able to breathe on their own and there's no like bleeding or like circulation problems. Other things that was fascinating that he really talked about in a fact check was he mentioned uh, an advanced airway or a surgical airway. So if you're not, if something's clogged or something happens or you can't pass a tube down someone's mouth, you can actually uh, perform a little emergency s- uh, surgery and have an incision in someone's uh, throat. Like, again, I've never done this. I've only seen it theoretically, but the theory is you can just create an incision and find a new source of an airway and go past the blockage. And another really cool thing that he mentioned was something called an intraosseous needle. So if you need to get like fluids into someone, you kind of attempt to find a vein, but if they're very dehydrated or their like veins are collapsed, you can't get into them. The next best place to go is actually through the bone, but intraosseous. And I think it's like uh, over the, like, the front of the leg with like the tibia, you find an access there. So I thought that was really neat. And just like a cool little trivia fact for our listeners out there, what uh, Dr. Wasser was talking about.
0: Another concept we touched on was the unique relationship between physicians and members of the government and police force. Uh, it really shows the interesting ways that medicine plays into our lives. There's a lot of places where we don't really consider the role of medicine. For example, Dr. Wasser is a trained emergency physician, uh, but he also took on a specialization that allowed him to handle disasters and protecting VIPs and providing medical care for VIPs. So it just goes to show the almost infinite routes that you can take in your medical, medical career, depending on what you're really interested and passionate about. One thing that I really found interesting about his role is just how diplomatic it actually is. It requires a lot of management of relationships with health units across the world. And I really appreciate this reciprocity. Eventually, all these leaders will be coming to Canada and Dr. Eddie Wasser will be able to repay the favour by helping their medical team set up and be prepared for any sort of situation that occurs here in Canada. So once again, we'd just like to extend a big thank you to Dr. Eddie Wasser for joining us. While Dr. Wasser offered some incredible, helpful advice on travel insurance, we recommend thoroughly doing your own research before going abroad, as conditions vary by country, and it's always better to be safe than sorry.
1: For sure, and we did a little joke about how travels are going to be very different uh, lately, but it's always good to keep in mind and have more time to read on your next travel plans. And with that, we would also like to thank Daniel Borns and Jessica Jung for interviewing Dr. Wasser, as well as Mike G. and Melanie Zhang for helping create the episode. Finally, we want to extend a thank you to the rest of the team, which was Grinder, Omri, myself, Isabella, Lucy, and Priscilla.
0: And once again, thank you to you guys. Thank you for tuning in to the ID podcast, where we discuss stories of medicine and the people behind them. Join us next time for another engaging episode. Thank you so much.